This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is The Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hop. We've got to kick it off today with a Buck Brief right away. You are entering the Blaze Threat Ops Center. This is a secure space. All outside comms are down. Prepare to receive the Buck Brief. Massive manhunt is still underway for the perpetrator of the terrorist attack in a Berlin Christmas market. Killed 12 people, over 50 wounded, some of them life-threatening injuries. The death toll still could go up. A uh, massive truck laden with tons of steel in its uh, carriage ran over people. Uh, The driver was seen to be targeting even small children. Uh, complete and utter evil, vile psychopath. Um, The initial person that they had in custody, who was a Pakistani migrant, has been let go. His blood did not match that in the cabin of the vehicle. Uh, So they are now searching for a 23-year-old Tunisian man. Um, They're looking for him. He's only identified as either Ahmed or Anis. Here's where this all of a sudden is... Well, not all of a sudden. Here's where this, of course falls into a very familiar pattern, one that we see all too often in these incidents and one that I know you are sick of reading and hearing and watching about, and I feel the same way. But we have to pay attention to the world as it is, not try to turn a blind eye to things and hope that they just go away. He was a Tunisian Arab Muslim immigrant to Germany. Earlier this year, he applied for asylum. Yes, he was one of these refugees, one of the refugees that the media assured us were just women and children and people looking for a better life, escaping violence and hardship. But he's Tunisian. He's not Syrian. Well, I guess you could argue that really a a majority of Muslim majority countries in the Middle East are pretty terrible places to live. Even the ones that are relatively wealthy and stable Still not free, still oppressive, still totalitarian. There are a couple of exceptions, but very few. Um, But this individual claimed refugee status. And as I said to you yesterday, there is something particularly evil, odious, vile, disgraceful, dishonorable, horrific about begging someone for help, uh, appealing to their most basic humanity, and then using that against them and trying to kill as many of their fellow countrymen as possible. This is going to have huge ramifications, by the way, for, of course, the German uh, elections coming up. Merkel is running for a fourth term as chancellor. But as we all know, 
what happens in Europe in this regard affects very much, not just because they're an ally, but because we have similar discussions in this country. It affects our security posture. It affects how we approach these issues, or at least how we're able to discuss these, these issues. So the suspect is an Arab Muslim from Tunisia in his early 20s. He was already on the radar of the authorities in Germany. In fact, they had scheduled him for deportation because of his connections to known Islamists. It is believed that he had connections to uh, Muslims. I'm sure some of them are refugees. Some of them are probably uh, born in Germany or have been citizens or permanent residents of Germany for some time who were working to smuggle fighters from the Islamic State into Germany. They are trying to export the ISIS virus into Europe to try to uh, create chaos, violence, and spreading uh, the spreading of terror. So they were hoping, they were hoping that they would be in a position to deport this individual. And then you start to see how uh, this notion of we can just take these things case by case and prevent all attacks, it's always going to fall apart. Because all it takes is one bump, one hesitation, and an attack is possible. Uh, in this case, the individual, will call him uh, Honest, just because that's what they're identifying him as, uh, was supposed to be deported, but they couldn't deport him, despite the fact that he was classified by German authorities as a potentially violent Salafist Muslim and suspected of ties to the Islamic State, if you are a refugee and there is any suspicion, and this should be true for any country anywhere in the world, any suspicion whatsoever that one, you are a security threat at any level, and two, you're not really grateful and thankful and full of love for this country that has taken you in and is sheltering you and giving you safe harbor, out. You know, next bus, next plane, next boat, I don't care. Out, gone, done. This is just rational thought being applied to immigration policy. This isn't complex. This is, And again, this is part of what has happened in this country over the last 12 months as we talk about our own immigration policy. You've started to see Democrats who object to the deportation of people who are in the country illegally and commit crimes in addition to that illegality so you come here you're not supposed to be here and then you break the law and democrats still don't want those people deported because that's breaking up families well this honest monster broke up a whole bunch of families with that truck in that christmas market families that will never recover families that will never get their loved ones back people in that hospital perhaps some of those who will survive, they will be plagued by PTSD for years, perhaps the rest of their lives. Some of them will have crippling injuries. Some of them may be paralyzed because of this refugee. Now, people look at these situations and they would like to crunch the numbers one way or the other. They'll say, well, out of a million, look at how many attacks we've had. First of all, it's not just the attacks. It's the attempted attacks. It's the attempts at this kind of mass murder and chaos. And there have been numerous plots, mostly tied to refugees, predominantly dealing with Muslims in Germany. Uh, there was a 12-year-old boy who was arrested recently because he wanted to blow up a Christmas market. That was just a few weeks ago. You didn't see much reporting on that in the news, did you? What a surprise. 
that there are all of these known Islamists and jihadists currently operating in Germany, you'd think, well, why don't they kick them out right away? Oh, I'm sure there are all kinds of human rights lawyers and, you know, Human Rights Watch or Amnesty International or some of these groups that are that are oftentimes doing the work of the enemy by providing them with cover stories under the guise of humanitarian rights and giving them a sort of legal top cover for them to continue their activities. All because they're such uh, good people, these international NGOs or German NGOs. I'm sure there's some of them, too. Just like in this country, there are all these different groups that will give free legal aid and advice to illegal immigrants to try to help them stay in the country and work the system. Speaking of the system, and I mentioned this before and I got off topic for a second, why was this known Islamist with suspected ties to the Islamic State not deported, which you would think you can draw a straight line to, would have saved the lives of at least 12 Germans, would have prevented over 50 more from horrific and grievous injury, and stopped the country from being thrown just a few days before Christmas into a state of fear and security paralysis. He didn't have a passport. You might say to me, Buck, hold on a second. Of course he doesn't have a passport. He's a refugee. So he shows up, says I don't have any papers, says I'm really scared, says my home country is a nasty, horrible place, as so many Muslim-majority countries are. I guess we're never allowed to note the similarity, but there is a similarity. And... I don't have any papers. Please, please take me in, take me in. First thing he seems to do is connect in northwestern Germany with some Islamists, some hardliners. Not that hard for them to track them down, apparently. The German authorities are already aware of them. And then they realize this and they go, okay, well, we got to get this guy out. Oh, wait, we can't because under German law, you have to have a passport. We can't, we can't throw a stateless person out of our state. Now a lot of people are dead. They classified him, as I said, as potentially violent, and now we know he, well, allegedly, it hasn't been proven in court yet, and we're assuming this time around the Germans have the right person. Perhaps we shouldn't make that assumption. Um, But they did find his residency permit in the cab of the truck used in the attack. So we've gone from somebody who seemed to have really planned this out and wore a mask, it seemed like he'd worked at all the details, to basically left his ID in the car that he in the truck that he used to mow down all these people. You don't need a criminal mastermind. You don't even need any training of any kind. And this is why the truck as weapon is more terrifying than a mass shooting, is more terrifying even than a bomb. Uh, because you can try to uh, you can try to stop those things. Those things also require a certain level of skill. Building a bomb, I know this because Faisal Shazad, the Times Square bomber, a case that my unit in the NYPD worked back in 2010, uh, he messed up the bomb. Otherwise, he would have killed probably hundreds of people in Times Square. Uh, there have been other instances as well where faulty bomb making or purchase of the precursor materials for bombs, that's what tripped up the terrorists before they were able to engage in their uh, deadly actions. And with firearms... There's always the possibility of, as we saw on that train, for example, which was I headed to Paris. I think it was in Belgium when they overcame, when a few Americans on vacation, America, uh, when a few Americans on vacation 
tackled him, took him down, and prevented him from turning that entire high-speed train into a shooting gallery. I mean, who knows how many dozens would have been murdered on that train. Again, we, we just, with the attacks that don't come to fruition or that don't have high body counts, we kind of forget. And then we have idiots from places like Vox.com and the Huffington Post and Slate and Salon and all these left-wing sites that would fall into Yuri Bezmanov's general description of people who no longer have the wish to defend their own culture, their own society, their own civilization, they'll run up, the, they'll, they'll run the numbers and they'll say, oh, well, look at how few have been killed. And we always want to say, first of all, look at how much effort we have to expend to prevent many more from being killed. And look at how many times we've been lucky and how many would have been killed if we didn't always have to sit around and wonder who's the next one to yell Allahu Akbar and kill a bunch of people in a public place because of Something to do with Islam. We sit and we wonder, when's the next one going to happen? I tweeted out the day of this, not to be uh, not to be snarky about an incredibly sad and tragic and terrible situation. I said, you know, so I guess we shouldn't all jump to conclusions about the likelihood that this is a, you know, a Muslim. Uh, a, a radicalized Muslim. I meant to write refugee. I should have written refugee is what I was thinking. But I was just tweeting it out. I thought it was fascinating. Two people said, oh, it's so racist to jump to that conclusion. Is it racist or is it just rational? First of all, Islam is not a race, so it's not racist. Let's start there. Second of all, uh, how, how many of these attacks have to happen that are the same before we can just say, okay, we, we know what this is, right? We can stop pretending that this might be different. If it's different, we'll say it's different. But let's not just take the posture from the start of, well, this, this one is different. Really, why? If it's different, I want to know why. Of course, they won't have an answer. It's exactly as we thought it would be. Hopefully, they get this individual, they capture him before he can do more damage, before he can kill more innocent people right before the Christmas holiday. This is going to continue. There are more Islamists in Germany. There are more Islamists in Europe. And yes, there are some here in this country as well. I don't think we have a particularly comprehensive policy to deal with this. I will be honest with you. And I also think that we have some real uh, critical thinking to do. We, we have some inward looking to do as a society, as a country for are we going to take this as the very real threat to our way of life that it is and speak openly and honestly about where this comes from and where the perpetrators tend to find their ideological moorings? Or are we going to say that, well, we can't be racist. We can't be xenophobes. We can't be Islamophobic. So we can't really talk about this. It's a, it's a police matter. It'll just go away. No, it won't. We'll be right back. Buck Sexton. Dispensing the truth. On the Blaze Radio Network. (laughs) 
Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Team sponsor this half hour, Super Beats. Buck Sexton here, as you know. You know, I've got a passion for living a healthy lifestyle. I've got to stay away from that gluten which includes clean eating. Super Beets is one of the most impressive functional foods I have ever seen. Why? Blood flow, blood flow, blood flow, blood flow. Beets are loaded with dietary nitrates, which converts nitric oxide in the body. Nitric oxide helps support healthy circulation and healthy blood pressure levels. Super Beets is the most convenient way to get these dietary nitrates to specifically help support healthy blood flow and circulation, and they work three times faster to give you results you can feel. Plus, they taste great. I take Super Beets every day. I can feel the energy and stamina it gives me with twenty minutes and within 20 minutes, and I want you to feel it too. So please call 800-311-4367 or go to teambuckbeats.com. Get a 30-day supply free. It comes with your first order and is backed by a money-back guarantee. Also receive a free book, Beat the Odds, and free shipping on your entire order. You're going to love the results you feel with your first free canister, guaranteed, or your money back. 800-311-4367 or teambuckbeats.com. 800-311-4367, teambuckbeats.com. Check it out. Interesting that people are already pointing out how the Trump response to these uh, national security events is very different from the uh, from the way that this administration handles these things. And it's fascinating to me that on the one hand, we're always told that tone matters, that Donald Trump's tone was a huge problem for a whole bunch of different reasons during the campaign, and that words matter and, the, and, and powerful government figures need to choose their words very carefully. And then when we say, well, okay, why does Obama always speak about the Islamic State in this sort of, you know, really almost disinterested, very sterile, um, almost laid back fashion. I mean, it's like he's like he's talking to us about, you know, an agricultural report or something from the Midwest. He just never really shows any fire about this and is always very careful. Uh, and this changed with Hillary Clinton, by the way, in, in the general, because she realized American people don't want this like, well, we, you know, it's not about Islam and it has nothing to do with Islam. And they, they don't want to, They don't want to get lectured on that. They don't want to hear about Islamophobia. Um, they just want this stuff to stop and they want someone to stop it. So Hillary would say radical Islamic. You notice this during the campaign. She would say radical Islamic terrorism. Uh, she said it a few times because Trump was goading her into it, I think, by saying, look at her. She, she tells you that she's going to face these enemies, but she won't even. She's afraid of offending the enemy, perhaps, or offending those who feel like they are too close to the enemy or that their ideology is in some way shared, even if hijacked by the enemy. Uh, But the way that Trump is going to respond to all of these things, the assassination in uh, Ankara of the Russian ambassador, 
the guy stands up. He yells Allahu Akbar. You know, he he says this is for Aleppo, um, but he's screaming, you know, that this is that God is great. One would think that if you're willing to shoot somebody and you and you're yelling about God, that there's a religious tie-in, at least in your mind, to your terror. And so, thinking that he is an Islamist terrorist. That's not quite a leap, but the way it was reported, it was, well, you know, Trump is jumping to conclusions about this. No, I actually think America is ready for when somebody commits an act of of murder, that's going to be an international news story, or any act of murder for that matter. But when someone kills another human being and screams God is great in Arabic when they do it, I think labeling that person a jihadist or an Islamist is is a pretty straightforward application of brain power. I really don't think we need to overcomplicate this. And this is where Trump gets it, and this is where a lot of the Democrats don't. And um, there's a whole bunch of reasons, including I think a lot of it is a sort of pseudo-sophistication of the left. They think that by dancing around this stuff, they're being more nuanced, uh, showing greater understanding, and of course, avoiding Islamophobia and xenophobia, which are big words that scare the left. The Buck Sexton Show. On the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show only. On the Blaze Radio Network. So, Team Buck, we are a few days away from Christmas, and uh, we have many servicemen and women overseas uh, in posts all over the world, including uh, an estimated 5,000 or so in Iraq and around 11,000 in Afghanistan, and then, of course, uh, many thousands more at large bases, Germany, Okinawa, South Korea. Uh, and then, of course, those who are in places that I don't know about and we wouldn't talk about if we did know. Uh, but they will not be, uh, many of them will not be spending Christmas with their families. I was thinking about that this morning, and I was also uh, thinking about this tr- horrific truck uh, truck massacre that happened in Berlin. And it kind of reminded me that there are people who stand on the wall to stop that truck. Um, and there was a speech that was given, and I thought we should spend some spend a few moments here to think about as the Christmas holiday approaches those who are who are actually standing on that wall in places all over the world and what they do and what they're willing to do. This is a speech uh, from General Kelly, who is going to be the Department of Homeland Security uh, head under the Trump administration, assuming he gets through confirmation, which I think he will. And it's a story that he tells about a couple of Marines who had just met and were on guard duty, and they were faced with a truck intent on mass murder, and it failed. And it failed because of these two young Marines who had never met each other before. And General Kelly, Marine Lieutenant General John Kelly, told this, this is from a speech back in 2010, and I wanted to read to you an excerpt of it. This reminds me, you know, as jihadists are trying to mow us, all of us, all decent human beings all over the world, mow us down with trucks, and sometimes those trucks are full of explosives, 
Uh, we thank God we've got people like the U.S. Marines, Army, Navy, Air Force, all of our armed forces, and the armed forces of allied countries to stand in the way of the truck. Here's what Kelly had to say about this in his speech. Two years ago, when I was the commander of all U.S. and Iraqi forces, this is back in 2010, in fact, the 22nd of April, 2008, two Marine infantry battalions, uh, 1-9, the Walking Dead, and the 2-8, were switching out in Ramadi. Uh, one battalion in the closing days of their deployment going home very soon, the other just starting its seven-month combat tour. Two Marines, Corporal Jonathan Yale and Lance Corporal Jordan Harter, 22 and 20 years old, respectively, one from each battalion, were assuming the watch together at the entrance gate of an outpost that contained a makeshift barracks housing 50 Marines. The same broken-down, ramshackle building was also home to 100 Iraqi police, also my men and our allies in the fight against the terrorists in Ramadi, a city until recently the most dangerous city on earth and owned by al-Qaeda. Yale was a dirt-poor, mixed-race kid from Virginia with a wife and daughter and a, and a mother and sister who lived with him and he supported as well. He did this on a yearly salary of less than $23,000. Harder, on the other hand, was a middle-class white kid from Long Island. They were from two completely different worlds. Had they not joined the Marines, they would never have met each other or understood that multiple Americas exist simultaneously, depending on one's race, education level, economic status, and where you might have been born. But they were Marines, combat Marines, forged in the same crucible of Marine training, and because of this bond, they were brothers as close or closer than if they had been born of the same woman. The mission orders they received from the sergeant squad leader, I am sure, went something like, Okay, you two clowns, stand this post and let no unauthorized personnel or vehicles pass. You clear? I'm also sure Yale and Harder then rolled their eyes and said in unison something like, Yes, sergeant, with just enough attitude that made the point without saying the words, No kidding, sweetheart, we know what we're doing. They then relieved two other Marines on watch and took up their post at the entry control point of Joint Security Station Nasser in the Sophia section of Ramadi in Al-Anbar province, Iraq. A few minutes later, a large blue truck turned down the alleyway, perhaps 60 to 70 yards in length, and sped its way through the serpentine of concrete jersey walls. The truck stopped just short of where the two were posted and detonated, killing them both catastrophically. 24 brick masonry houses were damaged or destroyed. A mosque 100 yards away collapsed. The truck's engine came to rest 200 yards away, knocking most of a house down before it stopped. Our explosives experts reckon the blast was made of 2,000 pounds of explosives. Two died, and because these two young infantrymen didn't have it in their DNA to run from danger, they saved 150 of their Iraqi and American brothers-in-arms. When I read the situation report about the incident a few hours after it happened, I called the regimental commander for details as something about this struck me as different. Marines dying or being seriously wounded is commonplace in combat. We expect Marines, regardless of rank or anything else, to stand their ground and do their duty and even die in the process if that's what the mission takes. But this just seemed different. The regimental commander had just returned from the site and he agreed but reported that there were no American witnesses to the event, just Iraqi police. 
I figured if there was any chance of finding out what actually happened and then to decorate the two Marines to acknowledge their bravery, I'd have to do it as a combat award that requires two eyewitnesses. And we figured the bureaucrats back, back in Washington would never buy Iraqi statements. If it had any chance at all, it had to come under the signature of a general officer. I traveled to Ramadi the next day and spoke individually to a half dozen Iraqi police, all of them whom told the same story. The blue truck turned down the alley and immediately sped up as it made its way through the serpentine. They all said, we knew immediately what was going on as soon as the two Marines began firing. The Iraqi police then related that some of them also fired and then to a man ran for safety just prior to the explosion. All of them survived. Many were injured, some seriously. One of the Iraqis elaborating with tears welling up said, they'd run like any normal man would to save his life. What he didn't know until then, he said, and what he learned that very instant was that Marines are not normal. Choking past the emotion, he said, Sir, in the name of God, no sane man would have stood there and done what they did. No sane man. They saved us all. What we didn't know at the time and only learned a couple of days later after I wrote a summary and submitted both Yale and Harder for uh, posthumous Navy crosses was that one of our security cameras, damaged initially in the blast, recorded some of the suicide attack. It happened exactly as the Iraqis described it. It took exactly six seconds from when the truck entered the alley until it detonated. You can watch the last six seconds of their young lives. Putting myself in their heads, I suppose it took about a second for the two Marines to separately come to the same conclusion about what was going on once the truck came into their view at the far end of the alley. Exactly no time to talk it over or call the sergeant to ask what they should do. Only enough time to take half an instant and think about what the sergeant told them to do a few minutes before. Let no unauthorized personnel or vehicles pass. The two Marines had about five seconds left to live. It took maybe another two seconds for them to present their weapons, take aim, and open up. By this time, the truck was halfway through the barriers and gaining speed the whole time. Here, the recording shows a number of Iraqi police, some of whom had fired their AKs, now scattering like the normal and rational men they were, some running right past the Marines. Marines had three seconds left to live. For about two seconds more, the recording shows the Marines firing nonstop, the truck's windshield exploding into shards of glass as their rounds take it apart and tore into the body of the SOB who's trying to get past them to kill their brothers, American and Iraqi, bedded down in the barracks, totally unaware of the fact that their lives at that moment depended entirely on two Marines standing their ground. If they had been aware, they would have know, they, they would know they were safe because two Marines stood between them and a crazed suicide bomber. The recording shows the truck careening to a stop immediately in front of the two Marines. And all the instantaneous violence, Yale and Harder never hesitated. By all reports and by the recording, they never stepped back. They never even started to step aside. They never even shifted their weight. With their feet spread shoulder width apart, they leaned into the danger, firing as fast as they could work their weapons. They only had one second left to live. The truck explodes. The camera goes blank. Two young men go to their God. Six seconds. Not enough time to think about their families, their country, their flag, or about their lives or their deaths. 
but more than enough time for two very brave young men to do their duty into eternity. That is the kind of people who are on the watch all over the world tonight for you. Merry Christmas to all of them. We'll be back. Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. Show. Team will post that full speech from uh, Marine General Kelly on uh, on Facebook, so you can read it yourself and see more of the backstory of it. Um, but I, I did think we should take some time to remember uh, remember those who stand between us and the truck that, in the hands of jihadists, would either blow us up or run us over and destroy us. Some stand in front of the truck. We should remember them. Many of them do. Um, so as I said, Merry Christmas to them. All right. I, I wanted to switch gears here uh, a little bit just cause otherwise I'm going to get uh, too down to finish out the show. Um, not even down, just a little, a little choked up. All right. Uh, this is going to unchoke up me cause he's the worst, the worst person ever. The irony is that he was the one who popularized worst person in the world or whatever it is as a list. That guy, Keith Olbermann, that was so terrible that even current TV paying him $10 million a year. Uh, was trying to get rid of him. Uh, I think he ended up suing them. Uh, I'm sure he... Uh, I, I believe that's what happened. And they don't even want him... They, I, I have heard from people at MSNBC that they don't even want him back in the building, that that was a problem. He wanted to come back. I, once somebody's made a lot of money and become, you know, be, doing this sort of thing, spewing the kind of bull that Keith Olbermann does and just being a really nasty human being. There are some people that in this business that on the left I hear... Uh, are good people. They're nice. They're decent. They're fair to their staffs. They're, you know, uh, he doesn't know me, but I, I mean, I obviously am a former Intel guy, and so I'm always cultivating sources everywhere. It's just kind of how I am. Uh, but, you know, Chris Hayes at MSNBC has the reputation of being a nice, good dude. Do I think he's right on anything? Pretty much no. But you see, he's a, can be a, you can be a good person who's wrong about a lot of things. There are a lot of people like that. Many of my friends in New York fall in that category. Uh, but Keith Olbermann is universally from what i hear again not knowing the man personally uh despised uh, but he's trying to make a comeback and he's trying to come back as essentially an anti-trump figure and he's posting rants like this one go trump is illiterate every day it is unprecedented Resistance means repetition. Humiliate him. Humiliate him every day. And those who support him. We are in this nightmare because at some point we stop punishing stupidity in this country. We will not fix this core problem by appeasing the Cretans. Besides which, they will not be appeased. They are too stupid to quit while they are ahead. To borrow a Bush-era normalization of terror, when you see something stupid, call someone stupid. I don't know if this is going to work because there are so many people who have beaten Olbermann to the... What he's trying to do is to borrow from Spinal Tap, take the dial to 11, and there really is no 11 on Trump. Everybody's already at 10 in the media. I mean, they're already trying to take Trump down. To be the ultimate anti-Trump at this point is a very difficult thing to pull off because you have so much competition. And you have entire networks that 
more or less are dedicated to undermining and and destroying the Trump presidency. I really do believe that there are there are entire newsrooms uh, full of people. There are very prominent television journalists or you know whatever we call them. They're not I don't know anchor men and anchor women. We just call them anchors, and anchors an inanimate object, isn't it? Side note, it's like calling someone a chair. Now you're a chairman or a chairwoman, right? It should be an anchor man or an anchor woman, because an anchor is a thing that keeps a boat from drifting. Side note, or it's an annoying person that you're out with and can't get rid of, especially if you're trying to make the moves on a very lovely lady, and she has an annoying friend who hasn't had a date in a long time and won't leave the lovely lady alone. That is also an anchor, but of a different kind. Uh, Olbermann, though, trying to be the ultimate anti-Trump. You're going to see a lot of this now. And I just think it's interesting because there's really no there's no room over there. there you, you can't go. This is a guy who made his name by essentially being as virulently and not just anti-Bush, but hateful and, uh, as he says, ridicule. Or what did he say? He said, make fun of them or ridicule them or, you know, take take Trump down every day. You know, mock him. That's what he says. Mock him every day to just mock and ridicule the uh, incoming commander-in-chief all the time. The thing is, Keith, this isn't a clever or unique strategy. There are already plenty of people that want to do this. So you are by no means uh, positioning yourself in such a way that you're going to be able to get ahead doing this. I would think. I don't know. Maybe there's room for the ultimate Trump hater still, but I feel like there's so many Trump haters. Oh, I was going to say about the anchor anchor people. Anchor man, anchor woman, whatever we call them. I think that the plan is to get uh, Trump impeached somehow. They're going to seize on something, and they're going to try to get him removed from office from from day one. By the way, this isn't going to be a you know let's see how it, let's see what happens. They're already trying to figure out right now what they can conjure up to create some sort of a groundswell to impeach the next president. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.